six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. My name is Rochelle Wilson and I'll be your host this hour. What do you think of when I say the word mall? The hustle and bustle of a food court? The scent of Orange Julius and Auntie Anne's pretzels wafting through the air? Rows and rows of shelves at big box bookstores? The intense fragrance of walking past a department store perfume counter? The bright and cheery facade of a Claire's jewelry store? Or the intimidating dark punk schemes of a hot topic? Today we'll be diving into all of that nostalgia and more, much more, as we talk about how malls grew up alongside suburbia and have shaped American culture for the past 70 years. Joining us today is Alexandra Lang. Alexandra Lang is an architecture and design critic. She's a columnist for Bloomberg City Lab and author of several books. And today we'll be talking about her latest book, Meet Me by the Fountain, An Inside History of the Mall. She will be visiting Madison next month for the Wisconsin Book Festival on Saturday, October 15th at 12 p.m. at Madison Public Library's Central Library Branch. So mark your calendars. Alexandra Lang, welcome to A Public Affair. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. I have been really stoked about this, and we're really happy to have you on today. I love that intro with all of these sights and sounds of the mall because really that's so important. You know, our memories of the mall are so rich and everybody has their own kind of like favorite place in the mall of the, of their childhood. That's absolutely true. And actually a good reminder that if you listeners have a comment about the mall, like a memory that you would like to share or something that stands out in your mind, you can, as always, give us a call at 608 608- Two five six two zero zero one extension 9 to join our conversation today. Alexandra Lang, in the introduction of your book, you talk about how shopping malls aren't typically taken seriously by design critics and historians, the Auntie Anne's pretzels notwithstanding. So why write about the mall? I want you to tell us why the mall isn't just a frivolous space. Well, when you're writing about architecture for a general audience, sometimes it's hard to convince people that a general audience is interested in architecture. And so I'm always attracted to the types of architecture that lots of people interact with all the time. Like my last book was called The Design of Childhood, and I have a whole chapter on playgrounds because people don't think about playgrounds having a design history. And I kind of felt like the same thing was true for malls. People think malls just sprang up full formed and that malls have always been the same. But malls have been around for 70 years now. And so they have their own kind of architectural history, their own you know business transformation. And really it felt like here's something that everyone thinks they knows know about, but I don't think they really do. Right. So how is the mall more than just materialism? Because I think, I mean, even in my description, I'm really talking about this kind of material experience. And I think we tend to think of consumerism and commercialism and capitalism and all of these isms that we in Madison mostly hate. (laughs) So how exactly is the mall more than that? Yeah, and I would never, I never try to cover up the fact that yes, the mall is a capitalist enterprise. But what interests me about it is how it has become so much more. I mean, the the kind of amount, the quantity of emotion and nostalgia and the quantity of memories people have about the mall indicate that it 
is not just a place for selling things, but it's a place where people find themselves. It's a place where people develop their personal style. It's where they end up meeting their first boyfriend. They get their first job. So there are all these kind of personal and community and social and cultural memories that are growing up in the mall alongside its basic capitalist function. Well, and I think we're going to talk about more of this throughout the hour, but your body of research in general touches a lot on gender and on domestic space. Women are kind of the er consumer of retail history here in the U.S., and malls are typically considered spaces for women and children. And how did that shape, you know, the history of the mall and its reception? Yeah, I mean, spaces for women and children have basically always been considered more frivolous. I ran into that again in my research on the design of childhood. Like, why would we care about this thing that's just for kids? And the mall was really specifically designed to give women and children who were newly isolated in the post-war suburbs a place to go. And it was designed to, in some ways, distract and extract money from those women as they met up with friends, did their daily round of errands, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, it gave them an outlet. If they hadn't had the mall, I think they would have been much more isolated and possibly much more depressed you know, in their homes. Like at the mall, they saw other people. At the mall, they had company. Um, at the mall, their kids could go on the carousel and have a good time. And so like one of the things I talk about in the intro to the book is how the government subsidized these single family suburban homes and it subsidized the building of highways, but it didn't subsidize a space in between those two things. And, you know, people can't live only in their cars and in their homes. They need somewhere else to go. If you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Rochelle Wilson, and today we're talking about the history of malls with architecture and design critic Alexandra Lang. I'm joined in the studio today by Nate Carlin, a news volunteer here at WORT. Hi, Nate. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming along and being here. Um, It looks like you maybe just got past a note. Do we have some folks from last hour to thank during Pledge Drive? We do. We have thanks for Speezer, who pledged in the final moments of Global Revolutions, likes all the jazz shows, Global Revolutions, and 8 o'clock buzz. Wonderful. Well, so in case uh, you haven't heard, we're in the second (laughs) week of Ward's Fall Pledge Drive, and we need to hear from you this hour. How can folks do that, Nate? Well, they can give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1, or there's always online at wortfm.org. And you can click the orange donate button and there you can find some of the thank you gifts that we have on offer for folks who donate Uh, today. Additionally, if you pledge or donate today at any level, you will be entered into a drawing for a copy of the book we're discussing today. Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall by Alexandra Lang. So we really do want to hear from you this hour. What's our goal, Nate? Our goal is to have nine donors, and I always like this goal, added goal of one new donor, which is just someone who's never given before. Maybe they're listening now and realize how much they love APA, and this is the moment. We will be so happy to say your name on air. Yeah, we love a first-timer. I mean, we're talking about the mall. That's maybe where you got your first kiss or had your first job or, you know, bought your first (laughs) CD, and... You know, today you can make history for yourself by being, you know, first time donor to WORT by going to WORTFM.org or calling 608-256-2001, extension 1. 
And you can call that same number, 608-256-2001, extension 9, to join our conversation today and tell us all about what you think about malls, love them, hate them, nostalgic, are they dead, et cetera, et cetera. We do want to hear your calls and comments, and we want to say your name on the air and thank you for donating online at WRTFM.org or by phone at 608-256-2001, extension 1. So let's get back to Alexandra Lang. Alexandra Lang, I kind of wanted to sketch some of the history that you lay out in the book. And so tell us a little bit about Victor Gruen. Yeah, Victor Gruen is, was a Viennese emigre. He emigrated to the U.S. in 1938, fleeing the Nazis. And he's generally considered the father of the shopping mall. He was somebody whose early work was in boutiques and then department stores, and he took a look at what was growing up in the U.S. post-war and thought, yes, women need a place to go, and yes, I can give it a lot more style than it has heretofore. You know, he drove around in the suburbs and thought the strip malls just kind of set up along the side of the road were very ugly and also inconvenient because you had to park and then pull out onto the highway and then turn into the next one, If even though often the stores and strip malls were very close to one another. So he thought, how can I make a place where you can park once and get all of your errands done? And perhaps there will also be a kind of Viennese sidewalk cafe there and a carousel for the children and so on and so forth. And so the first place that he was able to make this vision a reality uh, was in 1956 at Southdale in Edina, Minnesota. And one of the uh, one of the chief selling points of Southdale, which I think will also resonate in Wisconsin, was that it was 365 perfect shopping days a year. Like this was winter proof. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I it did to me then when I read that in your book, I was like, ooh, the mall feels so Midwestern in that way because just being able to go somewhere where you have hot summers and there's air conditioning and you have cold winters and there's heat and you have folks who are picking the mall as their place to take their daily walk. I mean, and so it kind of creates this space where you can go at any time. So how did that, how is this history of the mall kind of intertwined with the history of cars? You alluded to this earlier, but I kind of wanted to tease that out a bit more. Yeah, I mean, the mall really, you know, comes into its own during the 1950s and 1960s. These were the eras in which there was just massive highway expansion in the U.S. And those new highways opened up new areas that had been industrial land and farmland for residential development. So suddenly more people have cars, more people are commuting. And uh, I read about this one uh, Midwestern mall developer Edward J. DuBartolo, who basically chose new locations for malls by going up in a private plane and looking for new cloverleaf intersections, because those are places of high traffic, high visibility, and so he would cite his new malls on one of these cloverleafs. So the mall is you know, really inextricable from car culture because another selling point was also um, their giant parking lots and the ease of parking. Uh, so that's why you know, when you see a mall, it's usually a building in this sea of parking lot. But if you zoom out one level further, you'll see it positioned along a highway and generally at a highway interchange. 
And so this all sounds so practical to me, like this kind of um, resource and outlet for suburban families who had been kind of moving into these newly built up areas. And like you said, these areas with highway connections. But then I think of this kind of extravagant and frivolous mall that is the Mall of America. What is the story there? How did that come to be? Well, this is part of what, you know, I like to call the history of the mall, the evolution of the mall. You know, all malls aren't the same and malls haven't always been the same. The first mall, like Southdale, that Victor Gruen designed was pretty compact and basic. You know, it had two department stores, it had a Woolworths, it had a line of boutiques. But that was in the 50s. And by the early 1980s, that, you know, compact practical model had become pretty boring to people. People wouldn't travel for that anymore. And that's when we get a new mall innovator named John Jurdy, who was a Los Angeles-based architect. And he thought entertainment was the thing that would bring people back to the mall. Um, And there's a famous quote from him where he says, we need to make shopping beside the point. And you know the best expression of this is obviously the Mall of America, where instead of having a fountain in the middle of the mall, you have a whole amusement park. So you know you can go to the mall, but you're also going to Disneyland at the same time. And this was just a huge deal. I mean, the Mall of America is obviously you know of a size and scale unto itself, but many more malls started putting in, um, you know, kind of much more entertainment space, um, entertainment equipment, and turning themselves into a place where you would go and spend a whole day, if not a whole weekend. You're listening to Alexandra Lang on A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Rochelle Wilson. I have co-pilot Nate Carlin here with me, and we are in the middle of Pledge Drive. It looks like we've got a few people to thank already, Nate. Oh, yes. Very excited. We have Thermometer Lady. Uh, um, Their favorite shows are Back to the Country, Mud Acres, and I Like It Like That, and Adrienne. Her favorite shows, oh, she doesn't say. I think it must be APA, though. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah, why wouldn't it be? So I think there's, you've got the little bell over there, Nate. I I I wouldn't want to leave that out of the equation here. So thank you so much to Thermometer (laughs) Lady. Thank you so much to Adrienne. And I wanted to mention Thermometer Lady also gave a shout out to Bill and Bobby Malone when they host Back to the Country. Um, That's, you know, a kind of, I think, a local favorite for everyone. So thank you so much uh, to both of you, Thermometer Lady and Adrienne. And you can join them by supporting this station uh, by calling 608-256-2001, extension 1. Or actually, my favorite way to give online. Where can folks go, Nate? They can go to wortfm.org and click the orange button. So I kind of wanted to take a moment and just think about a public affair and kind of what it has brought uh, to our airwaves lately. Um, I was able to host a couple shows recently that I'm really proud of. Um, I did an interview with Alyssa Court commemorating the life and work of the late Barbara Ehrenreich. And that actually featured an archive tape from when Barbara Ehrenreich came to the WRT studios in 1999. And she was talking about her book, Nickel and Dimed, before it even came out. And so we're making history here at WORT. And not only did we do that 1999 interview, but we were able to commemorate her life shortly after her passing earlier this month by speaking with Alyssa Court and taking your calls. That's something that we absolutely love to do on the show here. Nate, do you have any other recent programs that stick out in your mind? Well, I was going to go all the way back to the first one you and I worked on together, which was uh, BS Jobs way back in... 
I want to say 2018? 19? By David Graeber, by David the late Graeber. David Graeber. Yeah, also, also a sort of a commemorative show. Well, I'm not sure we knew that at the time. Right. Yeah, we had David Graeber live on the air, and um, it was the last time we were able to host him on the show uh, because he did pass away. And that, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a great discussion you and I had way back when. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely love that book. I love David Graeber. I am honored that we were able to host him on the show. And, you know, folks like David Graeber, Barbara Ehrenreich, Mitch Jezerich from Letters and Politics, who joined us last, last Pledge Drive, this is the kind of high-quality programming that you can hear at WORT, and it's made possible by your support so we will invite you once again to give us a call this hour let us know how much this show means to you how can folks give nate they can give us a call at 608-256-2001 extension one or there's always online at wortfm.org Okay, moving back to our guest, Alexandra Lang, we were just talking about the Mall of America, and I was kind of hoping you could give us like a brief sketch of where the mall has gone since then, because it seems like it's had several heydays and like many iterations. Like, so how did we get where we are today? Yeah, well, it's interesting. So the Mall of America um, was designed in the 1980s, opened in 1992. And really, that's the era where people first start talking about the death of the mall. So people think that the death of the mall is something we're just talking about now. But in fact, it's had all of these moments of kind of triumph and tragedy. Um, Since the 80s, there have been a lot more malls with an entertainment focus. There was also um, a brief vogue for what was called lifestyle centers, which are basically a mall with the roof taken off um, and more of an obvious kind of pedestrian street going down the middle, but outside. Um, there's also you know, been a vogue for uh, ethnocentric malls, basically older malls that are in suburbs that have really changed in terms of their demographics. And rather than being developed by a national company with national chains, they've kind of dug into their local community and they have businesses that are much more targeted towards the demographics of the neighborhood. So you get Latinx malls, um, you get Asian malls of various stripes, um, you get African immigrant malls in some places. And that's really fascinating to me because you know, the the origins of the mall were really as a white space. Those um, initial post-war suburbs were designed for and real estate forces maintained them as white spaces. And so when you see these ethnocentric malls today, it's really an innovation and it's really an overturning of some of these older real estate patterns. Alexandra Lang, where else in your research for your book, Meet Me by the Fountain, Did you kind of see race coming into the story, maybe even in unexpected ways? Well, what place was actually in the chapter that I have on teenagers, in which I focus a lot on the way that malls turn up in teen media. Um, You know, Clueless has always been one of my favorite movies, and it was fun to realize that I could put Clueless in my book to talk about the mall scene where Cher and Christian are shopping. And there's this moment when they kind of come up into the light up an escalator, which is a very dramatic shot. And you see that part of the drama is actually the architecture of the mall with the top lighting and the palm trees. And it's just this quintessential California teen moment. That said, most of these, you know, kind of 
top lit glossy shopping mall scenes were um, about white teenagers in movies. And I realized there's this whole different dialogue um, on you know, kind of black shows about what teenagers get up to in the mall and a number of black shows, um, including you know, Blackish, uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, et cetera, have scenes where um, the, the kids who are the stars are picked up on false accusations of shoplifting at the mall. And this reflects a really real pattern, um, you know, not just in entertainment, about the way that black and brown teenagers are policed in malls. Um, a lot of malls have codes of conduct. You should Google your mall and the words code of conduct. And many of these um, apply to groups of teenagers unaccompanied by adults. But there have been lawsuits over the fact that those codes of conduct are more likely to be enforced against black and brown teenagers than they are against groups of white teenagers. Alexandra Lang, I'm I'm way ahead of you. I was like, okay. when I read about that in your book, I looked up because there's a youth escort policy at, at least one of the malls here in Madison. I'm thinking of East Town Mall, but it might apply to others. And it states that, quote, visitors under 18 are required to be accompanied by a parent or guardian 20 years or older on Friday and Saturday evenings after 4 p.m. or at any other time the policy is in effect. End quote. And that just seems so targeted to kind of maybe eliminate the mall rat of the past and these kind of packs of teens who can hang out. But I, I totally agree with you. I can see how that is unevenly enforced. Um, and just the whole presence of mall security guards that is kind of reminiscent of the police. And I also, as I was reading this code of conduct, it mentions to parents to bring a current photo of your child and to be cautious in the parking lots. And I couldn't help but think of the moral panic over stranger danger that was escalating in the 80s, kind of at the height of a certain kind of mall culture. And so I did want to ask you, how are malls intertwined with these kind of overinflated fears about crime and kidnapping and, like you say, um, race as well? Yeah, it's so interesting because, like, as I found out with many things with the mall, there's, like, a positive story and a negative story. And the two stories are totally intertwined. Like, the mall is just a very ambivalent space. So initially, especially in the 1980s, the mall was, you know, seen as and used as um, basically free babysitting. Parents initially felt that the mall was a safer place than kind of the real world for their kids to hang out. Um, but over time, merchants became, you know, uncomfortable maybe with who was hanging out at the mall. They realized the teenagers didn't have as much money as their parents, so they were spending all this time at the mall, but, you know, not really contributing to the bottom line. Um, and then there was this layer of what's known as arcade panic, which was these, you know, video game arcades, huge in the 80s and 90s, were in initially put in to attract teenagers, and then parents became worried that their teenagers were somehow being corrupted by playing too many video games, which obviously sounds familiar now, except you know, people play video games at home. So there's just this push-pull. It's like, is the mall good for teenagers because it gets them out of the house, or is it bad for teenagers because they're hanging out with the wrong kind of other kids? You know, like, is it safe or is it dangerous? Um, and uh, you know, I think the current state of mall affairs is that, you know, malls are kind of afraid and they po over police groups of teenagers. 
and it's become a, a public place that people you know worry about in the same way as they used to worry about the big bag city if you're just tuning in, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Rochelle Wilson, and today we're talking about the surprising history of malls with Alexandra Lang, author of the new book, Meet Me by the Fountain, An Inside History of the Mall. And today, for everyone who donates this hour, and only this hour, you will be entered into a drawing for the book. Um, a copy of the book. And I really think it's worth your time. I hope that as you're listening here to Alexandra Lang, you kind of just want to get your hands on a copy. And so might as well um, (laughs) give to WORT at the same time. How can folks do that, Nate? You can give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1, or they can always donate online at wortfm.org. And where's that bell sound? I need that as the background of this next announcement. So I personally wanted to thank Esty Denure, Friday host of A Public Affair. She pledges this hour in honor of me and my work at WORT. I think that that's just so sweet. And it's true. I've been producing this show for over four years, and I've been occasionally hosting it. And it's been such an honor. And I feel like I've learned so much, and I have felt so much support from our listeners. I love taking the calls that we get um, every day, Monday through Friday, noon to 1 p.m. That line is open, and I'm usually there on the other end of it to hear from our regulars. So if that's you today and you do want to contribute to this conversation about the history of malls, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. I would love to hear from you. Or we will also thank you if you make a pledge, and that's 608-256-2001, extension 1. And I wanted to just kind of take a moment to reflect on how this show brings interesting new books and best-selling authors right into your backyard. Alexandra Lang, you write a lot about public spaces, and in many ways, WRT is a public space, not just the station, but on the airwaves. Why do you think supporting independent local media is important? I think that you know one of the reasons I'm so interested in public space is the kinds of conversations it can foster and you need to have different kinds of public space to foster different types of conversations and public and listener supported radio is definitely one of those spaces conceptually that fosters a different kind of conversation than you're going to get other places. Yeah I think that's absolutely true and we actually heard that from Our author, David Korn, who we interviewed last week on Friday, he says, you know, normally it used to be that when he, after he wrote a new book, he would kind of go on this radio circuit. And there were a lot of people who were interested in talking to him on the radio. And he said that that's been dialing back, that a lot more radio stations, especially community radio stations like ours, I mean, any number of things have happened. The newsrooms have been stripped of funding. Um, There's not always time and room and space for this kind of programming but you, our listeners at WRT, I mean, you demand this programming. <laughs> Isn't that right, Nate? Oh, absolutely. And, and APA, A Public Affair, is, is a wonderful program, and it's in large part driven by the volunteer hosts. But there is also, as you know, a uh, staff producer who is paid behind the scenes that helps keep the show running, keep it professionalized. And that's the kind of thing that does require money. It, it, volunteers make up such a big part of what we do here. But in the end, there are some roles that just need to be paid and should be paid. And so when you pledge, you can, uh, you're helping support that, that kind of, of staff support. 
Yeah, I, I really appreciate you saying that because I think um, we're listener powered, but in many ways, and we're volunteer powered, but also, you know, we do have these operating costs and staff is part of that. And we um, we just couldn't do what we do here without listener support. Ask any volunteer at Ward and they will say thank you to the staff that helps them put stuff on the airwaves because, you know, even the best meaning volunteer, they need a little help, need a little guidance to get their show out there. So how can folks pledge this hour, not only to show their support for WRT, but to enter the book drawing for Alexandra's book? Well, they can always give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1, or online at wortfm.org. All right. So I'm getting back to Alexandra Lang and the history of malls. There's just so many places that this conversation could go. And I'm kind of going to harken back to something that I was talking about at the beginning, which is the food court um, that has been kind of such a central site of, I guess, like mall lore and the way that we imagine it and the cultural imaginary. How did food courts play into your research on malls? Well, one of the first things I discovered was that for about 15 to 20 years at the beginning, there weren't any food courts at malls. And this was like a real shocker to me because I think today, for anyone who grew up in the 80s, like the food court is the mall, like the smells, the look, um, the, you know, after you are done shopping, you get your treat. Like that's just what the mall experience is like. But initially, small di- malls didn't have food courts. They would have, you know, Woolworths with a lunch counter, or sometimes the department stores would have a restaurant. So opening up part of the mall and having all of these di- different businesses selling different kinds of foods was, I think, part of the casualization of food culture in the U.S. Um, and today, I think a lot of those food courts really are a place where you can see new food trends happening. I talk in the book a bunch about boba tea, you know, bubble tea, which is like, I love it. My kids love it. And I feel like, you know, many teens and tweens in America love it. And there's this long history of sugary snacks essentially being part of mall culture. You know, Mrs. Fields Foods, um, Orange Julius, smoothies. And I feel like bubble tea just fits into this slot as a really um, ideal mall food. Yeah, I'm a big fan of bubble tea as well. And I also just think about the kind of the ways in which malls um, have been a space for teens, although, like you said, it's a contested history. But I think that there's something to be said for just being able to walk s- somewhere, well, or drive somewhere and then walk in and with a, fi- a $5 bill in your pocket and be able to purchase something. And that feels so grown up, doesn't it? It does. I think that really low cost of entry has always been a driver for malls. Um, and it's, you know, it's like, as I discussed in the book, malls aren't a truly public space. They are privately owned. But among the world, in the world of privately owned public spaces, it's so cheap to be there. And traditionally, you have been able to hang out all day. There have been benches, there have been bathrooms. Like, these are the things that attract both young people And you referred to this a little bit earlier, older people like mall walkers who don't feel safe on the streets or are living in places that don't have good sidewalks. You know, the mall is this kind of upgrade to a lot of our public realm because it has all of these amenities. And maybe the grownups are buying coffee instead of bubble tea, but, you know, it serves the same purpose. (laughs) 
Right. And I, I kind of wanted to ask a little bit more about that public versus private, uh, because you bring this up in the book and it really does seem like once again, one of those things that has like sort of two sides to the story that are intention at all times, that public private debate. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, several people have said to me, you know, it's like, well, if we improved our public realm, then we wouldn't need malls. And my response to that is basically like, well, sure, yes, I agree that would be great, but do we think that is happening anytime soon? Like, I don't think so. Like, I do not think we have the funds. I do not think we have the will. So in the meantime, I think we need to focus on a lot of the good and actually kind of public-facing things that malls do, like having, you know, air-conditioned, heated, you know, bathrooms, benches, all of these things that people need, you know, in both su summer and winter, a place to walk around, um, a place where people of different generations can see each other and actually, you know, all have something to do. And I think that obviously, you know, security and enforcement at malls can make people feel unwelcome, but by and large, they run as a semi-public space and people treat them like that. Um, and we saw this even during the pandemic where malls turned um, sometimes closed department stores and sometimes their parking lots into um, COVID testing and then COVID booster shot clinics. You know, everyone knew where the mall was, so it was easy for people to drive in and get healthy. Yeah, that's so interesting, too, because it's just this huge piece of real estate the mall is and like i mean when we talk about sort of like the death of the mall or these like emptying outs of the mall uh, short of just like being totally leveled out what is happening with these spaces because i mean it's just so huge yeah it's funny i don't think you really see the mall as as big as it is until it's empty you know <laughs> there you know until there's you know no stuff on the shelves no cars in the parking lot and in the last chapters of my book i, I start to talk about how creative people are now getting with dead malls and and the first thing to realize is just here is this enormous gift of open and semi-open space often in what are pretty like um densely built up areas because you know the malls are in first and second ring suburbs that were built in the 50s and 60s and now those are much denser than they used to be um so i have a whole variety of examples of you know what people are doing with dead malls i think my favorite is probably austin community college where they have built a whole community college campus into a dead mall as well as a public tv station and then they've built um, basically a ring of new housing on the outer edge of the parking lot. So it's mixed use, it's much more dense, and there are even some little pocket parks where there just used to be asphalt. Oh, that's so interesting. I, I, I wanted to touch a little bit. I, we talked about the nostalgia, but, you know, for many of us, the mall is a space of nostalgia. I grew up in rural Michigan and my local mall was a 40 minute drive away in Battle Creek, Michigan. It was called Lakeview Square Mall. And I searched it online earlier and it looks like it's still up and running. But because it was so far away for me and my friends, it wasn't necessarily like a go to hangout. But I do actually have a lot of family memories there, which kind of harkens to something you said, Alexandra, about um, intergenerational connections. My mom would drive me and my siblings to the mall at least once. 
every Christmas for kind of a big shopping outing where we would like get our presents for each other and we'd have to like hide them in different opaque bags and like undercoats because we were shopping for each other while we were all there together. And it was where the closest major bookstore was, a Barnes and Noble. And that was the entrance that my family used to get into the mall. And I was just like obsessed. I was a book nerd. Is anyone surprised? Um, And the mall was just that place where you could get a t-shirt with, you know, your favorite band on it. And there was no way you were going to be getting that in your kind of rural Walmart or anything like that. I, I kind of wanted to dive into mall memories because, you know, we have um, about 15 minutes left in the show here, and I'm hoping folks will call in with their own mall memories at 608-256-2001, extension 9. But what is a maybe a pivotal uh, mall memory you'd like to share, Alexandra? Well, I, I mean, it's so interesting you just say that about the band t-shirt, because when I was doing my research, um, a lot of times kids who grew up in different rural areas in the U.S. talked about band t-shirts and Hot Topic at the mall being like the one place where you could find that band that you had heard on the radio. You know, no one else in your town liked them. And so I think for a lot of, you know, 80s, 90s kids, Hot Topic was this really important place to see like, oh, okay, like there are other fans out there. And maybe when I go to college, maybe when I move to the city, like I'll find them. I was not that kind of kid. I was a very nerdy kid. So a lot of my um, mall memories center on the gap um, in the 80s when it basically sold nothing but like candy colored cotton t-shirts and wool sweaters. And I just loved it. Like to me, that was kind of the pinnacle of fashion. I'm still really into color. And so going to the Gap and, you know, saving my money for that one you know, new green sweater. And then um, I talk in the intro to the book about the specific plastic of the Gap shopping bag, which was kind of a higher quality plastic than a lot of Ooh, shopping I bags. I remember it. I remember the <laughs> yeah. feel like immediately right. you say that. Yeah, so that was so important to me. I also have bookstore memories. It was a Walden Books at my mall, so much smaller and kind of less elaborate than most of those mall Barnes and Nobles. But I would go in the back and read Sweet Valley High books, um, which my mother kind of looked down on and wouldn't let me (laughs) buy. But so, and I wrote a piece earlier this year about mall bookstores, which I really think, you know, kind of brought books to more places and more people than um, independent bookstores are able to do. And so, you know, I'm more in the passing of a lot of those big mall Barnes and Nobles, big borders stores, um, because they were definitely part of the story. Absolutely. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WRT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Rochelle Wilson. Today's show is all about malls, and we're talking with Alexandra Lang, author of the new book, Meet Me by the Fountain, which is a history of the mall. And, um, well, you can get your your own copy of this book by donating this hour. Nate, do we have anyone new to thank? Oh, I don't know. I haven't looked into a thing that's that. Well, it was a leading question because the answer is no. (laughs) So I did want to take a moment to invite folks. I know we have these like 11th hour procrastinator types um, who like to call in at the very end of the show. And you know what? Like my heart goes out to you. I'm totally that way, too. I I, I feel you on that. But we do need to hear from you this hour. Uh, If you want to give us a pledge, the number is 608-256. 2001 extension 1. 
I'm going to say that again because I don't think Nate's mic was hot. Mike was hot. Um, the number is 608-256-2001, extension 1. And you can also go online to WORTFM.org. And uh, we'd love to thank you this hour. And we would love to, you know, get a copy of this amazing book into someone's hands, a listener of this show. Um, so do call us. Uh, Nate, I think your mic is on now. Oh, good. So I can say the number? No, I, <laughs> it's not. Okay, the number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. Oh, and I see why your mic wasn't on. It's because Andrew was taking a call. Uh, we have Jane on the line with a mall memory. Jane, you're on the air. Hi, hello. Um, it, in uh, the spring of 1971, I was enrolled in a 3D art design class here at the UW Len Koenig, the instructor, had us, for one of the assignments, we were to go to Westtown Mall, which was very new. I mean, it had just recently been built. And he had, he said to go in the front entrance and look at this created waterfall. And it looks like this huge, like, granite rock that you might see out, you know, out in the nature somewhere. And he said... It's fake. You know, if you go up and touch it, it's not granite. And it was, I don't remember how that tied in with our assignment for that week, but that that's my mall memory. <laughs> well, thank you so much for calling in, Jane. I love that. And I love, um, I love a good UW memory as well. Uh, how, what, what is your response to that, Alexandra? I mean, do, are you used to hearing stories like that about the mall kind of being fake and having fake facades? Uh, I definitely am. Um, I like that story because, you know, it's referring to the mall fountain, which figures in the title of my book. And, you know, I feel like mall fountains are one of those things that you don't even notice. It's kind of just like this thing that happens at the mall. You go in, there's a fountain, you go find your shop. But in fact, you know, a lot of really interesting architects and designers design those mall fountains. And the fountains themselves are this really important meeting point and locus of memories. So the fact that that one happened to be fake is not a surprise, but I think um, alludes to the glamour that people were trying to bring to malls, you know, through things like central fountains that, uh, you know, even in the dead of winter, the fountain would be on and, you know, that would remind you of a more tropical location. Um, so, you know, it's like even if you didn't have something as elaborate as a theme park, there was still a little bit of a theming to help draw people in and make them all stand out in your mind. That's interesting. Um, I, I as, as I'm looking at the clock, it's like, of course, these hours always go by so quickly and it wouldn't be right to not talk about this kind of narrative about the death of the mall and Alexandra Lang you've had to respond to this so many times in your work it's maybe like beating a, a dead horse or a dead mall at this point but you know why do you take issue with that narrative about the death of the mall well I, I would never deny that some malls are dying but the truth is not all malls are dying and even in the kind of bleakest predictions by various you know investment banker types there is still probably going to be, you know, 800 or so living malls in the U.S. going forward. And 800 is a lot of malls. Um, so I think 
I like to talk about the Dead Mall narrative um, being very visually driven. Like there is something really compelling about Dead Mall photography, and um, you know, there's a Reddit for Dead Malls. There are Instagram accounts. There are YouTubers who you know video in Dead Malls, and I love all that. Like it's really interesting, but it gives the impression that like all the malls are going to go, and that's just not true. I mean, there are a lot of classic malls, especially the higher end malls um, with like a Neiman Marcus or Nordstrom as their anchor store that are doing really well. Um, and there are other kind of flipped malls that have taken on you know kind of new identities that are also doing well. So just to dismiss the mall as you know a dinosaur of the 20th century that people don't need anymore, I think it's wrong. Well, and, and not only that, but I think it's been complicated by the pandemic because on the one hand, the pandemic really demonstrated, in my opinion, the need for third spaces, like those places outside of home and work where people can spend a lot of time. And at the same time, the pandemic kind of felt like the nail in the coffin for brick and mortar retail and in-person shopping. And we saw all of these plummeting rates. How does the mall fit into that kind of emerging narrative? Yeah, I mean, before the pandemic, uh, online retail shopping was like 15% of retail sales, and it zoomed up to like 30 to 35% during the pandemic. And I think there was a lot of fear that it would stay that way, that people would just kind of permanently move that amount of their shopping online. But early indicators are that that number is already dropping. Like, it turns out that doing most of your shopping online is really annoying. I mean, I don't know how many people I've talked to who are like, yeah, I don't know what's going on with sizing. Like I have to order three sizes of everything and send two back. Or I hate the amount of cardboard that is constantly building up in my basement because of all the packages that I get. And, you know, there's an easy solution to that. You can go to the mall and try on three sizes of pants and just buy the right one. And I think there is enough frustration that people are going to go back to it. I mean, I think that, you know, stores need to really emphasize customer service. You know, they need to be like fresh and fun and you know, be an experience for people. But I don't think there's anything so wonderful and compelling about online shopping that malls aren't going to get some of their market share back. That's right. You got to get your band T-shirt in the correct size. I mean, you wouldn't want <laughs> you wouldn't want to wear an ill-fitting band T-shirt. <laughs> uh, we actually do have a caller on the line with another mall memory that I'm so excited for. Thank you, Terry, for calling in. You're on the air. I have um, actually a, a, a memory and a comment. Um, the comment is about that what you were just talking about is trying things on at the malls. I'm a plus-size woman, and uh, malls never have anything that either look good or fit. Mm. So I have to do my shopping online. Um, but my mall memory is that I was a kid in the 60s, and um, the town that I lived in was surrounded by cornfields. And I remember the, the grown-ups arguing, you know, kind of shaking their heads among themselves why on earth they were building a shopping center of some sort out in the middle of the cornfield 10 miles out of town they just could not figure that out and that mall is now completely surrounded by town and um, the people who invented that idea were quite right but you know we just didn't get it at the time 
Wow. Thank you so much for calling in, Terry. And I did want to pivot to the first thing that you mentioned. Alexandra Lang, I have ever had that experience, too, where the mall doesn't always feel inclusive. Maybe they don't have stores that have your sizes. Maybe there's nothing that's in your aesthetic. Maybe it feels like it's only the spot for the cool kids and not for, you know, kind of the outcasts and the nerds among us. Whatever it may be, are you seeing a um, a move for malls to become more inclusive? I, I mean, I think the the lack of plus sizes is definitely a problem. And I think that's really on like the brands and the stores. I mean, Mm. I've seen a lot of dialogue about this online um, in terms of brands needing to expand their size range and have them in person. So I think that's definitely something that is changing and hopefully will change like in bricks and mortar. Um, I, you know, the demographics of the suburbs are changing. And so the idea that a group of, say, you know, black and brown teenagers would have been anomalous in the mall space is much more believable, you know, if we're talking about malls of the 70s and 80s than it is now when the suburbs are more diverse and um, the shoppers that malls are catering to are more diverse. So I hope that, you know, kind of mall owners, mall security, are adapting to the changing times um, because otherwise they will drive shoppers away and they will make themselves seem like something of the past that is only aimed at a really kind of narrow demographic. We're talking with Alexandra Lang today on A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. We are in the midst of Pledge Drive, and we're going to take one more quick pledge break before asking our final questions of Alexandra Um, I wanted to just kind of let everyone know a public affair is not only a live radio show, it's a podcast. And just yesterday, listener Evan on Twitter commented on our school special about the teacher shortage back from August, quote, good episode. Carousel Baird got very fired up, maybe more fired up than her guest. I had tears in my eyes. Thank you. You both made teachers feel seen and heard. And that was Evan on Twitter. Evan was able to listen to this episode a full month after it aired, thanks to the fact that we take time to digitize these shows and post them online with show notes so that you can learn more about our guests and about the issues that we've been discussing. And this kind of work is part of Wart's operating budget. Nate? Yeah, so if you want to help support that kind of uh, behind-the-scenes work, you can give us a pledge at 608-256-2001, extension 1, or is always online at wortfm.org. And I'm eager to see those pledges rolling in at the end of this hour because you will be entered into a drawing for Alexandra Lang's book, Meet Me by the Fountain. And I just, I don't know, I love seeing these names. I love reading them on air. I love knowing that folks out there are listening um, and that you value this program. And it's like just kind of like a little mini vote of support for us. Well, it's not even mini. It's huge. We love seeing it and we would love to hear from you. Call 608-256-2001, extension 1, or go online to WORT fm.org. Nate, do we have uh, something coming in here? <laughs> it looks like we have a new donor, a one-time gift from Jane Smith, who says, WRT never fails to be just right. Anything I tune into at Wart is good. Thank you so much, Jane. I love to hear that. And, you know, like I said, we love our our, our last minute folks. Even if you get our uh, sweaty palms over here, we still love to see you coming up at the end of the show. 
So with our final couple minutes here, Alexandra Lang, I actually wanted to bring up, you know, a, this idea that maybe the mall can make a comeback, uh, quote unquote, right? But because much to my dismay as a millennial, the 90s and the early aughts are making a comeback in fashion and media. And I just watched that new Netflix film, Do Revenge, which has a lot of callbacks to Clueless, which you just mentioned earlier on the show, one of the iconic mall movies. Do you think that all of this 90s nostalgia and early aughts nostalgia is going to bring a resurgence for the mall? Or what other forms do you think the mall might take moving forward? I think it is going to bring a revival because a lot of those, you know, 80s, 90s kids now have kids of their own. And I think they're thinking, well, what are we going to do on a Saturday afternoon that's going to make everybody happy? Like, where can we go, you know? on a winter, dark winter Saturday, um, if we live in, you know, the northern part of the USA. And I think they're realizing, you know, the mall served a really important purpose for families. And now, like, they're trying to figure out how their family's going to run. And they also need the mall. Um, The one part of the mall that I don't think is going to come back is department stores. I just think they've really kind of lost their grip on kind of fashion and the public imagination. But what I see replacing them are much more like family activities. And I just read yesterday about a former department store that's being turned into like a cross country bike track. And I feel like that's the kind of thing a family might very much want to do on a weekend. Well, thank you, Alexandra Lang, for looking into your crystal ball and helping us see the future of the malls. And thank you for helping us have these memories and just have a fun conversation this hour. We really appreciate that. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And uh, before we sign off today, we do want to thank our donors for the hour. Nate? That is Speezer, Thermometer Lady, Adrienne, and Jane Smith. Thank you so much to all of you for donating. And you still do have a couple more minutes to log in and do that at WORTFM.org or call 608-256-2001, extension 1. And that brings us to the end of our show today. Thanks so much for joining us, Alexandra Lang. Thanks, too, to all of our callers and donors today. This Hour of Radio was produced and hosted by me, Rochelle Wilson. Nate Carlin was my Pledge Drive co-pilot. Andrew Thomas ran the soundboard. And Wart News Director Shelly Pittman provided support. Up next on Madison Bookbeat, Stu Levitan will be in conversation with Ann Winkler-Mori about her new book, Allegiance to Wind and Waters, Bicycling the Political Divides of the United States. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. It's the same recorded message you've been singing all along. Keep handing us the Bible while you're walking off with all the gold. The bureaucratic office sends you merry-go-rounding. While the KKK police the streets by bloodhounding. Interest on the credit card just keeps on compounding. But the FCC can never shut this pirate sound down. I'm indirect, we come and never pre-recorded with information that would